On today's episode, we're talking all about muscle strain management. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Welcome back, Run Smarter Scholars. Thanks for joining me today on another episode. Today, we're going to be talking about muscle strains and uh, how to actually treat and manage them. And it was, this is an idea I've had for a while and I introduced it into the patrons, uh, the patron Facebook group when putting together some episodes. What usually happens with the patrons once a month is I suggest I put forth a poll which gives them about four different options of ideas I have for episodes and they vote on those episodes and the winner, um, the winning topic, I turn into an episode and that gets released as a patron-only episode which is available on the Run Smarter app. If you're signed up and you're a patron and you log into the app, you click on the podcast episodes and there's, I think there's like 16 so episodes now of just exclusive patron episodes. Sometimes I release them on this feed, but this topic around muscle strain management has been in that poll for a couple of months and it's always second. (laughs) And so runners want to hear about it and there's always just a new topic that seems to be more popular. So I thought let's take it away. Let's not put it in the poll anymore because it's always coming second. And let me just put it on the main feed because it seems like people are interested in it and it is something that is a little bit on the rarer side in terms of running related injuries, but would be nice to have an episode on it to direct people if they do have a hamstring strain or a calf strain. And so uh, I've put together some ideas, I've put together some thoughts around this particular episode. And I think the first thing I wanted to discuss was muscle grades like the um, grade one grade two grade three muscle strain if you've played in sports or if you had a strain before and you go to a health professional they might decide to grade it they say oh this is a grade one quad strain and I think it is a little bit on a spectrum well not a little bit I think it is on a spectrum especially around the grades one and two Uh, grade one is usually around there is um, some strain to the muscle without physical damage. So the muscle fibers themselves haven't necessarily torn. Like if you were to look at it on ultrasound, there might be some spasm, there might be some um, swelling, there might be some sort of inflammatory process going on, but there's no torn muscle fibers. Grade two is where you start to actually see 
some muscle strain, muscle fibers um, breaking apart, however large that may be. And then your grade three is kind of your significant tears, sometimes complete tears or most of the muscle has torn. We're talking like, you know, that sort of rupturing style, which is usually, well, it won't be associated with running. It's usually like um, tackles or like your elite athlete putting out high volumes or um, car crashes, like all those sort of things, like the really heavy trauma-based stuff. Um, So we're mainly focusing on the grade one and the grade twos when it comes to management because you're not going to see grade threes just with running. Uh, okay. So the, the one thing I want to mention is it is on a spectrum, especially the, the grade ones and the grade twos. So the principles around, okay, this is what you do for a grade one. This is what you do for a grade two doesn't necessarily apply because you could have a severe grade one, or you could have like a mild grade two, which kind of the management would be the same. <clears throat> so just bear that in mind. And I, I'm not entirely sure how accurate these grades are but it's just what I was taught when I was at uni and it seems like just flicking around on Physiopedia and a few other websites, they they seem to agree with that particular categorization. So how common is it in runners? Where do we see it in runners? I think it's, it's going to be mainly with sprinting based track athletes or hill repeats or heavy intervals, like those sort of bouts of exercise that require that higher intensity. Uh, otherwise the, the low volume overload stuff tends to be like a ligament injury or tends to be like a, um, like a patellofemoral joint style injury or a shin splints, like the, the repetitive nature of low volume or low intensity running at high volume tends to be those sort of things. But the abrupt changes or exceeding your, Muscles capacity is usually involved with higher intensity efforts. Usually there could be a, a muscle strain that is occurred under like really high fatigue. So if you're in an ultra or if you're in like a marathon and you're really pushing yourself and you're, you're absolutely spent muscles are starting to give way. The whole body's starting to get a bit fatigued well, get very fatigued and um, your form starts dropping. Maybe you can get a hamstring or a quad strain grade one there, but it's like I said, it's mainly reserved for the upper efforts, upper intensities, sprinting, those sort of things. Hamstring you'll see, um, and calves you'll see if you're doing those intense efforts and there is a calf strain somewhere in a runner, or if there is a muscle strain somewhere in a runner, it'd mainly be, um, the hamstring or the calf. As soon as the faster you run, the demands for the hamstring like increase exponentially it is crazy when you start to get towards um, a fast run into a sprint what the demand is like Uh, the calves again if you're doing hill sprints if you're doing like fast repeats the demand just goes through the roof Uh, what else do i see sometimes adductor or groin strains mainly reserved for like sporting athletes definitely see it more often in soccer just because of the the side um, kicking the ball with the the inside of your foot just works the adductors more and the change in direction, those sort of things. But the faster you run, the more your adductors work. If you don't have very strong adductors, might create a strain. Hip flexors are another one. Um, Hip flexor strains. If you're doing more sprinting efforts, because we know that that works harder 
when you're sprinting. Uh, what else? The, I guess the, the quads, yes, could. Um, the glutes, not so much. But I think the, the hamstring and the calf would, would be more common in the running population. Okay, why does it happen? Like with most other injuries, it's due to an overload, like just exceeding the muscle's ability to um, tolerate that particular force, that particular load over that amount of repetitions with that speed for whatever reason, or well, all muscles have a certain capacity. If you exceed that capacity, it's going to say enough's enough and um, become sore. It's very hard to push yourself to create a strain um, because if you were doing, say, a squat, if something was like really slow and controlled but really heavy, there's going to be other limitations going to limit you before the muscle actually tears. But in something that's quite unexpected, like a sprinting sort of thing, then um, it has the potential just to get strained and get sore. What are the symptoms? I guess the um, the symptoms, if we're talking about differentiating from other running related injuries and pains and soreness that might arise in runners. Um, it's often will arise. It will often arise during the activity or soon after, like a bit of a cool down. A lot of runners that get strains that I've worked with report that they notice it during the run and it's warmed up. It's okay. It's like very mild. They can continue running, but just notice something there. And then once they cool down, it gets significantly worse. So um, either becomes more painful or the range of movement becomes more limited, becomes stiff and achy or throbby. Uh, <clears throat> so that's usually when the onset of symptoms occur and completely different to say like a tendon. If anyone's had a tendinopathy in the past, you'll know that you could probably run throughout the entire session. Once you cool down, it's a little bit minor. Maybe you can feel it there, maybe not but definitely the next morning when you wake up significantly worse. You rarely have a tendon issue unless there is a rupture or something where you notice it during the run. So just bear that in mind. The onset is a, a little bit different. Um, any other characteristics? Like I say, it's, well, location definitely. If you're trying to differentiate the, uh, a muscle strain from a tendon, the location of the pain will definitely differentiate those if it's, located in the muscle belly, then you'll know it's a muscle strain. If it's located in the tendon, <laughs> then you'll know it's a tendinopathy or like a reactive tendon pain. Um, there could be some nerve or neurological symptoms like an irritated sciatic nerve or irritated piriformis that can produce symptoms into the muscle belly. And you say, so beware of that. It, you'll say, oh, I feel pain in the middle of my hamstring. Therefore, it should be a muscle strain. But <clears throat> there are other things that can mean it's it's not a muscle strain. Just bear that in mind. That's why health professionals do assess these injuries and it's best that you do get it uh, assessed by a health professional if it's not getting better or if it's behaving quite differently. So just be aware of that. The next topic that I have. I'm speaking very generally here, but we will have some examples later on. Um, some early management principles. Um, most people will be familiar with the rest, ice, compress, elevate to help settle down the symptoms, help remove 
the or help the inflammatory process as much as possible. Um, so most people be familiar with that. I am torn between what is beneficial and what isn't. The evidence doesn't really point directly to something. Um, there and is there's some interesting findings to contradict the ice and the elevation and those sort of management methods. So, um, there, there is a really nice acronym for injury management, which I've discussed on the podcast before, but, um, worth repeating again for this particular topic. The acronym is quite long. It's called peace and love. And the peace word acronym is more for the immediate, um, the immediate, injury when there's trauma that's been had, if you've rolled an ankle or if you have, um, yeah, torn something, if it's more trauma related, then we're talking about the pace and then you move into love. But for like tendinopathies and that sort of thing, you can skip the pace, the immediate, um, inflammatory sort of processing move straight to love. But the pace is protect, elevate, avoid any just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Anti-inflammations, compress and educate. So let's... Let's go from the top. So P is protect. The protect part is like if you do need to uh, spend some time on crutches or if you do need to wear a brace for a couple of days or if you need to tape something for a couple of days, if you need to avoid running for a couple of days, we're protecting the area from stimulus uh, that might aggravate things. So that's how... um, What's required, that's usually for severe traumatic sort of injuries, probably for muscle strains. If it's a grade one and you're moving around okay and um, you can like negotiate stairs okay and it's not too disruptive, we probably don't need to protect it too much. The next letter in piece is the E, which is elevate. Still not too sure. I've gone through some research in the past and like the elevation, if you roll an ankle and you elevate the foot above the level of your heart, it does very, very minimal um, effect. There's very minimal effect on swelling and compressing because the idea being if you keep that body area above your heart, then it's harder to pump blood to that area. It's harder to pump against gravity rather than down. So if you roll an ankle and you sit with your foot down, all that blood and all that swelling and all that, um, the effusion is going to expand. But if you elevate above the level of the heart, it's going to be harder for the body to do so. So it's going to be less so. I've heard it's like a 5% difference. But, um, you know, you could do it. I don't think it's that high on my priority list. The A, which is an interesting one, is avoid anti-inflammation medication. Now, this might go against the grain of what other health professionals or GPs or what you may have read, but anti-inflammatory medication may have negative effects in long-term tissue healing. And there is evidence that we can point to for this. 
And I looked up on a website on Physiopedia, they did have this peace and love acronym. And when it came to the topic of avoiding anti-inflams, they said that optimal soft tissue regeneration is supported by various phases of the inflammatory process. So when an injury does occur, you have um, a whole bunch of different stages or phases of the healing process. One being inflammation. Um, so they have these mediators that, that help assist the area and they do that through inflammation. It's the body's process of healing. And um, if you do have medication that inhibit this inflammatory process, you could impair the healing process. So keep that in mind. Um, I'm still a little bit torn on this, maybe for particular injuries. Um, we do know that anti-inflammatory have negative effects with long-term tissue healing. We do know that they have negative effects if they are taken um, long-term. They do have negative effects on tendon um, synthesis, so like how a tendon is structured and may increase your risk of developing a tendinopathy in the future if you continue long-term with these anti-inflammatory medications, so be very careful. If someone is really struggling, if they have had, if they there is noticeable swelling, if an ankle is ballooned up, um, I usually say, yeah, you can have some anti-inflammatory medication, but take it for two days and then see how it goes. Um, part of me thinks that if it is really swollen, that it's the body like overreacting, like, yes, we do need the inflammatory process to heal, but with most things, um, it's quite obvious that that we don't need that much inflammatory, um, that much swelling in order to continue that healing process. And maybe it's just a little bit of an over-exaggeration. So I've also seen like, say for ankle sprains, or if you roll an ankle and it, it's significantly swollen up, I've found that an ice bucket, um, trick where you just sit with the, um, the foot in the ice bucket for 20 minutes. But during that 20 minutes, you're, you're standing up, you're doing squats, you're doing calf raises as you can manage. And then you sit back down. I've got that in my ankle, the rolled ankle podcast episode that I recorded and it just works wonders. And whether that's because it's cold, whether it's because it's ice and um, reduces inflammation, not too sure, but I've seen it work wonders. So I'm going to keep prescribing it. Um, but then again, there's a lot of evidence to say that um, if you have a muscle strain or if you have other inflammatory injuries, and then you, you have two groups, ice versus non-ice. They don't really differ that much. So again, that's why I'm a little bit confused. That's why I'm up in the air, but I thought I'd share my um, my thoughts. There was more about... Um, so that was the anti-inflammation medication on the Physiopedia website. But then they had all, also said avoid ice. And they said uh, use of ice is mostly analgesic, which means if you put an ice pack on your skin, it doesn't necessarily reduce inflammation, but it might... Um, settle down pain levels. So two different approaches to that. And they said, although it is widely accepted as an intervention, there is very little high quality evidence that supports the use of ice in treatment of soft tissue injuries. So um, <clears throat> there's some evidence, but the, there's no like robust evidence to point to, to say, this is really good for, for management. They continue, they continue to say that ice may potentially disrupt the inflammation process and revascularization. 
And then they talk about a, a few other stages in the inflammatory process that it might disrupt or may inhibit. Um, ice may potentially increase immature myofibers, which can result in impaired tissue degeneration and redundant collagen synthesis. So just disrupting the healing process. Not too sure. Take it with a grain of salt. Um, so that's... <laughs> We're still moving into this acronym, so this peace and love. So peace, um, P, protect, E, elevate, A, avoid anti-inflams, C is compress. Again, um, may have a little bit of an analgesic effect, may serve a little bit, but again, not too sure how relevant it is or how much it, um, how important it is. E is education, which is pretty important. So that completes the, the acronym of peace. So the last being education, education about the injury, education about management, education about loading, returning to sport, returning to running, all those sort of things is really, really crucial. Making sure they're not mismanaging that injury for a few weeks because that's how injuries prolong or get worse. Um, so making sure that good management's done from day one onwards so that the, um, the healing process can take place. Stretches, I had here in stretches, like, I guess um, you may hear don't stretch or stretch. My, I guess where I sit on the fence is you can do some light stretches. It won't do damage, won't do further damage to the injury um, unless it's a grade three, which we're mainly talking grade ones and grade twos in this particular episode. Um, it won't, won't cause further damage, but it won't help the healing either. If you do some light stretches and you feel a little bit better moving around for five, 10 minutes, then maybe it's something you can do, but just don't overdo it. Just light stretches. Um, further in that acronym, so there was peace and love. So the love is more past that acute phase, past that first couple of days, or just straight into to love when it comes to tendon injuries. Because there isn't inflammation present in tendon injuries, we can just skip straight to love. And that is load, so loading it up um, as symptoms allow. Optimism, so making sure you have the right education around the um, timeframes and making sure you're, you're not fearful to do certain things and there's none of that... Um, really psychologically driven pain centers or pain signals that go on. V is vascularization. So we talked about that in the first 10 principles of the podcast, uh, think episode eight and talk about how some certain cross training varieties can um, not make the injury worse, but you're still exercising, getting the, the lungs going, getting the heart pumping, getting a light sweat on and, um, continuing to exercise and E is exercise. So as well as loading and vascularization, cross training, it's just um, maintaining a good amount of exercise as much as symptoms allow. So just definitely this part of the acronym, just being very proactive, very active and um, helping the, the injury, maintaining your fitness levels, all that maintaining like men, the mental side of things, very important. So, how soon do you go into the love? Like how how much, how long do we need to wait for these injuries before we can start loading them up? It's actually a lot sooner than you think. And a lot of people think, okay, I've got this grade one hamstring strain. Maybe it's a week off or maybe I need to rest for 10 days before I resume exercise. I think you're being quite, um, I think 
that's extending the rest phase a little bit too long. Again, it's all on a spectrum. It all just depends on the person, but I've seen a lot of people wait way too long before they can start, before they start loading, um, especially for grade ones. And I've got a couple of examples around hamstrings and calves and that sort of thing uh, to talk about timeframes and talking about um, what exercises should go where in the rehab. And we'll talk about that now. Okay, so I've got a couple of examples here, the hamstring and the calf. Um, first of all, like when it comes to just general symptoms, um, they're pretty much the same as all the other principles that we've learned. Like it can be very similar to tendon injuries and just um, those same pain guidelines. So usually when I exercise, I say, okay, if you have a strain, a muscle strain, and you start exercising, loading, rehabbing, um, all those sort of things, pain should be less than a four out of 10. So we're talking your zeros, your ones, your twos, and your threes. How that subjectively fits to you, how to categorize them or label them, those certain numbers. I have a podcast around um, your pain levels and my best examples of trying to communicate that subjectively, how to know if it's a three or a four out of 10 um, pain. Um, so symptoms are more likely observed during and immediately after these during loading. So like say for tendons, you could load, you could do squats or deadlifts to load up your tendon during rehab. And you need to wait 24 hours to see if it was negotiated. We have those snapshots in time. We have the pain during the exercise, the pain after the exercise to see if there's any carryover irritation. And we're looking at pain the next day. While these three timeframes are still relevant to um, management for muscle strains, it's more, we can focus more on the immediate term. So during and immediately after, that's sort of where um, most of our focus should be. So you can do, if you have a quad strain, you can do a squat and really pay attention to what the symptoms are. Give yourself the green light if it's below those particular numbers or if it's within those acceptable boundaries and make sure that it doesn't get worse throughout the set because tendons can get better throughout the set once you do this slow, heavy load. Muscle strains might get worse, especially if it's um, if you're really just pushing the limits, if you're trying to see your maximum capacity capable of within this given acceptable zone. So if it's a three to start with, be very careful that the more repetitions you do doesn't push into a four. So just be careful with that. So the hamstring, let's say you've gone for a run, you've started doing some intervals, maybe the interval sessions were a little bit more intense because your best friend decided to do the exercises with you and then that sense of competition and sense of you know trying to prove yourself and how much progression you've made and show off and all of a sudden you feel a ping in your hamstring uh, you stop running. Once you've cooled down, it feels significantly worse. Needs to get assessed. Needs to sort of assign the severity of that strain. Um, day one, perhaps rest. Perhaps day one, you can completely rest and then you can maybe go to the physio to get checked out. I would say in most cases, day two and day three, we can start some loading. And some exercises that I have would be some bridges, just it can be long lever bridges. So the heels are further away from your body because the further away they are from your body, 
the uh, more the hamstrings are working. So we can find a, a level or a range that where the heels can go where you still find those acceptable levels of pain. Maybe in day two, we're probably pushing, we probably want a pain level of about zero to one. You can also do some uh, hamstring curls if they're tolerated. Um, so lying on your stomach, getting a TheraBand, putting it around both of your ankles. And then while the unaffected side is cemented to the ground, your affected side is curling your um, curling the heel towards your bum and putting tension on that band. So we're doing both what we call an open chain exercise and a closed chain exercise. So with the open chain, the affected side, which uh, the heel is like uh, moving in free space. So it's an open chain exercise. But with the bridge, the affected side, the foot is fixated on the ground or fixated to on a surface. So that's what we call a closed chain exercise. So assigning an open and closed chain exercise can be quite nice in the early stages. Again, as symptoms allow, again, everyone's different. So these are just general kind of guidelines. So those exercises, maybe day two or day three. Um, moving beyond that into day four to seven, we're just progressing as symptoms allow. So we can increase the weight of the hamstring curls. Maybe we can go to the gym and do a prone hamstring curl with the machine and assign whatever weight allows for um, those acceptable pain levels. We can also do a hamstring curl with a band and do it faster. So still quite light, but activating the hamstring quicker and faster. With the bridges, we can do longer lever. So just moving those heels further away from the body. We can then do single leg and see how far away the heels can move with that um, single leg, again, following acceptable pain levels. And we can also see when's a better time to start introducing some form of cross training. So cycling can be okay for the hamstring, especially if you don't have the cleats, like the clip-in shoes that pull up and, and you don't pull up in the, the pedal stroke and you're mainly just pushing down. Therefore, it's more quad dominant. It's not going to strain the hamstrings too much. Swimming can be okay. If kicking is irritating, then you can just put a buoy in between the knees and just do the, um, the arms and get the benefit of that vascularization, getting the benefit of that cross-training, just exercising, staying fit. Uh, maybe further along, you can do some like jump rope, some skipping that can be quite, um, well, not too strenuous on the hamstring, but still preserving a lot of muscles required for running. So calves, Achilles, and feet. Keep that in mind. If you do some like single leg skipping, single leg hopping, um, that can work the glutes a little bit more. And again, doesn't strain the hamstring too much. Day eight. Um, so still continuing to progress those exercises. Oh, I should say beyond day eight. Maybe we try some walk-run programs with a lot of walking, a little bit of running, see how you respond, and then progress as assigned. This is where it becomes a lot more tailored because we're just depending on symptoms, depending on what your current level of fitness is like. And yeah, just start becoming progressive as symptoms allow and just yeah, building upon that. So that's the hamstring. The calf follows a very similar kind of pattern guideline just with different examples. So let's just say um, you 
go out for a run. It's time for like, maybe, maybe go for your, a run with your best mate again. And he's like, oh, I do hill sprints once a week. Do you want to come join? He said, yeah, I'm capable of doing hill sprints for sure. And you've never done before in your life. Then all of a sudden you're doing these hill sprints and you feel a ping in your calf. If the calf is sore, um, when cooling down, you can start to feel a little bit, um, a little bit tight. If you touch it, it might be a little bit sore. Day one, probably rest. Day two, three, um, once it's assessed, again, we can start some exercises. We can assign some exercises. We can do some double leg isometric um, calf raises on a step. So you are placing both feet on the edge of a step. So your toes are on the step, your heels are hanging off. And it could just be body weight or it could be weighted um, depending on symptoms, but you're just applying some load through the calf that, um, yeah, doesn't aggravate symptoms. Then if you are progressing beyond day two or three into day four to day seven, we're progressing those. We're going through movements. So maybe our calf raises, um, just doing your generic calf raises on a step. Maybe we're adding weight. Maybe we move to single leg cross training again. Um, cycling could be quite nice because it activates the calf, but doesn't put too much strain through the calf. So that can be quite a nice alternative or cross training method to do. If it's on the lower side of things um, and walking's okay, uh, walking's totally fine, but as soon as you try some bounding sort of exercises that triggers pain, then maybe some walking or some hiking might be considered in your cross training alternatives. Um, moving beyond that and moving beyond like a week, so say day eight, you might want to try jogging on the spot. You might want to try doing some little jumps and seeing if that can be tolerated. If that can be tolerated and you're jogging on the spot for more than you know, two minutes without irritation, then we can move into a walk run program. And again, building up from there. So once you go beyond that stage, you're gradually increasing your walk run program and you're gradually increasing your cross training and you're gradually increasing your strength rehab exercises. How you do that, how fast you progress all depends on the person, depends on the level of severity, which is why a coach or a health professional can be quite nice. Um, and that's what I have. Those are the examples because they're the most common, but you can apply, you can see that the similarities between the hamstring and the calf, and then you can just apply very similar ideas to the adductor or to hip flexors. You know, those, um, carry over very nicely. So a bit of a recap, you've got your three grades, you've got your runners will hover around that grade one, grade two. So grade one, there's no physical kind of, um, tear or anything in the muscle fibers. The common areas are probably your hamstring and your calf. I haven't looked up the research to look at the prevalence, but from what I've seen and what makes sense based on the demands of the body, it's usually the calf and the hamstring. Uh, early management. Look, I'm still up in the air when it comes to the protect, elevate, compress ice, but you know, it, it should be said that for ice, you're probably not going to do too much hindrance um, it might help you with your analgesics. It might help lower pain levels, but you know, take it with a grain of salt. It's not going to have too much effect. What is going to have all the effect is moving into the next phase, which is going to be loading, which is going to be education, cross training, vascularization, all those really, 
um, proactive, healthy parts of the rehab, which we all know very well from the podcast, carries over very well into tendon rehabs, those same principles, and just as symptoms allow, progressing, and you should be able to see an improvement week by week. If you're not seeing an improvement week by week, then you're doing something wrong in the management, maybe a misdiagnosis, maybe you're going out too hard, make sure you change that management so you do see an improvement week by week. That's it for today's episode. What do I have coming up next time? Um, there was a question coming in around if you're, what do we do if your injury um, isn't getting better but isn't getting worse? I'll lay out my thoughts and um, see what I come up with. So until next time, remember, every new insight brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.